I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Brief a short, sharp snapshot of the region's policy landscape. My name is Edwina Landale. Earlier this month, citizens across India celebrated as their top court legalised homosexuality. India's Supreme Court struck down a colonial-era ban on gay sex after years of activism and widespread demand for change. The legislation in question, Section 377, criminalised sexual activities, quote, against the order of nature. The law had become a weapon for harassment of the LGBT community, and the Supreme Court's decision has been met with resistance from various anti-gay groups claiming to represent Indian values. The self-appointed All India Muslim Personal Law Board denounced the judgment, tweeting, quote, "'Legalized homosexuality is against Indian values and culture. No religion allows immorality.'" We live in a world divided on the rights of LGBT people. Across the Asia-Pacific region, rights vary from countries which allow gay couples to marry, like Australia, New Zealand and Taiwan after 2019, to countries where homosexual activity can lead to floggings, imprisonment and, in the Kingdom of Brunei, possibly even the death penalty. The question is, will legalisation change social attitudes? To help us answer this question, today we have Professor Wayne Morgan. Wayne is an associate professor at the ANU College of Law. He is recognised internationally as a pioneer in the field of queer legal theory, and his research focuses on social justice and law reform, primarily in the areas of human sexuality, gender identity and legal regulation. Thank you for joining us today, Wayne. It's good to be here, Edwina. Thank you for inviting me. You've read the entire 500-page ruling uh, (laughs) coming out of the Indian Supreme Court recently. I have, yes. So thank you so much for doing the hard work for us. What did you find was the main takeaway from reading all of those 500 pages? Well, yes, look, what I'd like to say about it is I was actually very pleasantly surprised at the sweeping nature of the judgment. Um, We see a real progression in these judgments if we track them over time. If you go back 20 or 30 years when uh, superior courts or even international courts started to decriminalise gay sex, if I can put it that way, decisions were actually very narrow and didn't make very many connections with the broader aspects of life. The good thing about this Indian Supreme Court decision is that it really does an excellent job of pointing out not only the way that these laws actually criminalise certain acts, but have all sorts of effects, some of which you've already mentioned, going into all all spheres of life, whether that is in employment, relationship laws, uh, discrimination, you know, a whole range of violence. 
and the right to health, the right to housing. So there are so many aspects of discrimination that sexual minorities still face that sodomy laws have an impact on. And so the fact that the Indian Supreme Court judgment makes all of those connections and makes all of those reasons part of its reasons for uh, declaring the laws unconstitutional, I think is a great step forward in these sorts of constitutional cases. So how is this going to change the lives of LGBT community members in India? Well, of course, that's a separate question. Um, And of course, that's an important point to make. Uh, Doing something about the formal legal position of sexual minorities in whatever country we're talking about is obviously a necessary step, but it is never a sufficient step. If there is a law on the book that actually names a class of people as criminal, Obviously, that labels them as second-class citizens and um, justifies a whole range of behaviour against those people because they are classed as almost non-human or at least criminal. And so, as I said, whilst uh, getting rid of these laws is never enough and changing social attitudes will still take a very long time, as I said, I believe it is a necessary step along the way to achieve that more substantive equality that we're all looking for in our day-to-day lives. The legal aspect is the foundation of the lived rights, basically. Well, that's right. As I said, um, look, sometimes, of course, we think that, you know, the laws on the books may not have much to do with the way that we do live our lives. But I remember um, even in the Tasmanian decriminalisation, which, of course, wasn't that long ago in Australia, just in the 1990s, so we're only talking about a couple of decades. Um, And if you think about a simple thing like a lease, you know, of course, a lease will often have in it that if you commit a criminal offence you can be evicted. Now, of course, if you're having sex with a partner that you love in a country or in a state that has laws that criminalise homosexuality, well, then you're in breach of your lease every single day and you can be thrown out of your house. So, yeah, the tentacles of these laws reach into all aspects of society. Now, repealing them obviously is not enough. And one of the problems when these laws are repealed, and I suspect the same thing will happen in India, often there is not enough effort uh, made by governments in terms of education and actually trying to change some of the attitudes of people in the general community about beliefs that may be you know, long held. You mentioned before some of the comments of some of the Muslim organisations But I certainly wouldn't take it face value. And of course, if we look at the religions within India, particularly Hinduism and Buddhism, it is true to say that in a number of their written texts, there are no traditional condemnations of homosexuality per se. There may be condemnations of desire writ large, so to speak, and the harm that that can do, but no distinctions are drawn. So yeah, even this question of supposedly time-honoured religious prohibitions is often quite suspect and can be the result of revisionist views of those religions rather than proper historical investigation. As you say, the origin of this law is not necessarily tradition. So where does it come from? Yeah, look, this is one of the incredibly unfortunate legacies of British colonialism. And in fact, out of the 53 members of the Commonwealth of Nations, the international organisation, 35 of them still criminalise homosexuality in some form. And if we leave aside Islamic states, 
that makes the Commonwealth now, if I can put it this way, the most homophobic grouping of states that exist. Now, as a citizen of a country of the Commonwealth, I find that highly disturbing. The Indian Penal Code was brought into force for India um, by the colonial government. And interestingly, that law in India, the Indian Penal Code, was then actually used as a model for other penal codes in a number of other colonies at the time, um, both in Africa and particularly in Asia. And so exactly the same provision from the Indian Penal Code, you know, you would find in Singapore, in Malaysia, in Brunei, all directly copied, even down to the same numbering. So often in these states, it's section 377, as it is in India. What is also interesting about the colonial laws is the fact that they have remained so long and in such an unchanged form even after independence and even after uh, a number of the independent governments have done a lot to reform other aspects of criminal law. So why do we see this change occurring in India now? As you say, they've been independent for quite a long time, 71 Mm. years, I think, Mm. since independence in India. This has not been a quick and easy fight in India, just like it isn't a, you know, it is never a quick and easy fight anywhere to get rid of these laws. So activists within India, uh, you know, since the 1990s and possibly, you know, even earlier have been working on these issues, constantly raising these issues. And one thing that can be said about the Indian sexual minority communities, they are very well connected. They are very active. And they have worked long and hard through a series of cases. This is just the final in a series to bring about changes for the rights of sexual minorities. So um, in between 2014 and 2018, there were a couple of other important cases, mainly focusing on the rights of transgender people. The Indian Supreme Court did say very strongly that in its opinion, Section 377 was unconstitutional, but they couldn't actually make that ruling until an appropriate case came up. But they certainly paved the way. Um, As I said, the judgment is actually very sweeping, and that's one of the things I like about it. They talk about these laws going to the very heart of the basic rights in the Indian constitution. So the right to life, the right to liberty. And they speak about, you know, the right to human dignity. What I also like about the case is that in quite broad terms, it talks about rights to the self-determination of identity. I wish our High Court would speak in terms like that. Now, that is actually going quite a long way if you actually think about what a concrete right to the self-determination of identity might mean in a whole range of different areas of law, including things like women's control over their own bodies. So I think to start phrasing some of these things as something like, you know, uh, the right to self-determination of identity has far more implications and is far more broad-ranging than simply talking about, you know, what people do in their bedrooms. This was a decision that really needed to be given. And I think it's great that it is coming from a large developing country that hopefully will set an example. I think it's interesting that you brought up this issue of sodomy law as restricting like the identity, not just the Mm. sexual behavior or the sexuality Mm. of people. And on the topic of the language of the ruling, I can't say that I've read all 500 pages, but I did have a look at the introduction and something that stood out to me quite a lot was 
the amount of references that were in there to Western thinkers. There was John Stuart Mills, Goethe. There was even Shakespeare mentioned. There was, there was a yes. Shakespeare quote. Rise by any other name. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. I mean, if you're, you're seeing... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Literally the most iconic British literary figure mm. referenced in the introductory remarks mm. of this ruling for the Indian legal system. Does that signal that there is some kind of residual Britishness in the Indian legal system? Well, I perhaps wouldn't phrase it quite that way. And yeah, it's certainly true that the leading judgment of the Chief Justice does begin with all of those quotes that you've talked about and does draw quite heavily, I think, on European and perhaps, you know, Anglo-European authors and traditions. Interestingly, one of the later judgments um, by one of the different judges, I was very surprised and impressed to see the number of academic literature, including quite modern theoretical work coming out of queer theory referenced. So you've literally got one of the judges of the Supreme Court quoting Eve Kowalski Sedgwick in her Epistemology of the Closet. Now, you know, again, I, I doubt whether, I, well, I have to be careful what I say, but I, I suspect that many judges in Australia, you know, would have difficulty even understanding what Eve Kowalski Sedgwick has to say. So, but the point I'm making is that the Indian Supreme Court judgment does not just draw upon that Anglo-European uh, tradition. It does draw on a whole range of sources, including talking about some of the research, and again, it's more recent research that has been done in India about the long traditions and the longstanding communities around sexual difference, around gender identity that have existed for centuries. And so I think that's also a, a very important source for the Indian Supreme Court to draw on. We've been speaking quite a lot about the legal aspects of LGBT rights, but behind all of this is a lot of political goings on. In Australia recently, we've seen the fight for gay marriage mm. being somewhat slowed by a postal vote, which was an interesting decision. Mm. So where does the Backfired. political... Yes. Done, thank God. When does the political play into all of this and what's your opinion on the recent Australian legislation? Yes, yeah, and in fact there are connections there, uh, I would assert, with a lot of the colonial era, era laws in a way because one of the interesting aspects of this is, yeah, well, why do these laws stay on the books for so long and why are sexuality issues, why are they so heated when it comes to public debate. And my point would be that often these issues are purposefully used as political footballs. And we've seen this time and time again 
So even within our own country, you know, some of the recent prime ministers, we could almost say that every single prime minister we've had since Kevin Rudd has been wedged to some extent over sexuality issues. Um, And so the point I'm making is that laws about sexuality or the social position of sexual minority groups can often be used as a way to scapegoat and can often be used for political purposes that have nothing to do with sexuality at all. So simply as a way to score points off, say, your opposition political party. And we see this very much reflected in the postal vote. You know, I was personally incensed as a gay man that my rights were being made subject to a postal vote, rights that are supposed to be inherent um, for all human beings. It was offensive beyond belief And of course, you know, I voted yes, as, you know, many people do. But the fact that I had to do that, I found really, really offensive. What is it about sexuality that makes people so strongly opinionated, no matter where they sit on the argument? Mm. People tend to be highly emotionally charged around issues or questions of sexuality. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And, and of course, we all know ourselves, you know, when we think of those aspects of our life that are incredibly important to us, go to the heart of who we are as people, sexuality is one of those. When we think of the intimacy that comes along with sexuality, and again, going back to literature and things, you know, those aspects of human existence have been described as, of course, some of the most euphoric, some of the, you know, happiest, but also some of the most important in terms of forming long-lasting human relationships and empathy. So, you know, there can be no doubt that concepts of sexuality go to the very heart of what it is to be human. It seems to me that usually sexuality laws, even though they are supposed to be about what people do in their bedrooms, actually have very little to do with what people do in their bedrooms and are far more about public statements by dominant groups about what they view as acceptable in society and the way in which they want society organised. And yeah, luckily these days, of course, um, we are seeing more and more attacks on those sorts of hegemonic laws. So what is the next step for India's gay rights movement? There's a lot of work to be done, as you've just said, public health policy, anti-discrimination laws that need to be implemented. And a whole range of relationship laws, of course, um, that's high on the agenda all around the world, and also uh, parenting rights as well. There is a whole range of issues that you know, still need to be addressed. Look, this is this is very difficult. Um, as I mentioned before, it is often very difficult to get governments to take action. And again, that has a lot to do with dog whistling. It's, it's a lot easier to leave homophobic laws on the books and appease, you know, more conservative or religious aspects of a society that way. The point I'm making, I suppose, is we can't rely upon governments to do this themselves. They won't. Um, Unfortunately, too, although it is of some use, um, international law is uh, less of a use in this area than it is in other areas of human rights. International law itself is going to be of limited use. So if we can't rely upon governments, 
and we can't rely upon international organisations or international courts. Basically, what we have to rely upon is community activism. One thing that I often say to my students is that, you know, I think what we need is far better global networks in terms of sexuality. So, you know, these sorts of reforms are never going to work unless they come from within the country and are built up from the ground, the groundswell of public opinion. But unfortunately, again, if we're talking about a number of developing countries where a lot of these laws exist, that is particularly difficult. And so I think it's very much incumbent upon Western sexuality groups and networks to start networking with and supporting in a more practical and real sense those growing aspects of civil society. There is no country in the world that has homophobic laws where there isn't some form of activism against those laws. And so what we need to do is support those activists within the countries to extend their networks. Luckily, of course, these days with the internet, that has become a whole lot easier. There are more and more international uh, sexuality or gender identity organisations being formed, and there is an awful lot of human rights activism going on within this field. And luckily, that will not stop until we do eventually have equality. Perhaps not in my lifetime, but yes, eventually. And one final question. The legalisation of gay marriage in Australia would have been a pretty momentous moment for you both professionally and personally. So how did you celebrate? Well, yeah, it's interesting. As I said, I was so incensed about the postal vote. And, you know, in some ways, I wish it never had to take place. But when it was taking place, the first thing I did was organise for me and my ex-partner to make a huge banner saying yes, which we then put on my roof because I live up on a hill and you can see my roof from a major road. So I was quite pleased with the big yes that was there for sort of six weeks. Um, in terms of celebration, look, I was, I was really pleased to see the numbers. And so one of the things I really focused on was the percentages in various electorates. And, you know, even that was very heartening to me. I have a particular interest in sort of sexuality, gender identity issues within sort of rural and regional communities. So I actually really celebrated some of the rural results and, yeah, the high percentages that were gained um, around the country. Apart from that, for me, it was fairly low-key. I must admit, and I don't want to open a can of worms, but perhaps in line with my sort of queer theory aspirations, I'm... I'm not a big fan of marriage as a form of relationship recognition per se for straight people or gay people. So, yeah, my position on marriage has always been that we should abolish it. (laughs) Uh, But leaving that aside, I was very pleased to see the growing acceptance of diversity and the growing respect for equality which I thought the postal vote reflected. And those were the things, those were the aspects of it that I celebrated. Thank you so much for coming in today. I think it's been incredibly helpful to have someone frame this in terms of the wider power structures and the deeper social and cultural issues that come along with legalisation of homosexual activity And I think this is a pretty big moment for not just Mm. India, but the region. A hundred million LGBT community members of the nation are 
probably pretty happy right now. Absolutely. So thank you so much for coming in today to talk to us about this. It's a pleasure, Edwina. Thank you. Don't forget that we would love to hear any comments or feedback from this podcast or any of our content. You can contact us on Twitter. We're Apps Policy Forum, Facebook, the Asia Pacific Policy Society, or shoot us an email with podcast at policyforum.net. We have our usual Policy Forum pod coming out on Friday, so don't forget to tune into that. And I'll be back next Monday with another episode of The Brief. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.